Welcome, LifeBridge. We hope that uh, you've come back and hope you're there. I can't see you, but hopefully you can see me. And my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at LifeBridge. And I just want to welcome you to Lockdown Easter. Is that not the craziest thing, Lockdown Easter? Now, we're in our third week you know, the first two weeks, maybe you thought, wow, it's great having the spouse home. It's great having more time with kids. But by now, we're all going crazy. We are just going crazy. And you're like, when can we get out of here? Well, we don't know, but God knows. But here's one thing I do know. Here on this Easter Sunday, Christ is risen. Christ is risen today. Welcome to this Easter Sunday. Now, like we've done. Uh, in fact, I, I introduced this to our church over 30 years ago. It wasn't original with me. It was from the early church. It's the Easter greeting. And so I will say Christ is risen. And then I want you to say he is risen indeed. You can say it right back to me right there in your home, or you can say it to those with you. So let's do it together. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's do it one more time. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. I can hear you. One last time, say it like you mean it. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, I'm glad you're here on this Easter morning as we continue in our study of the gospel according to Isaiah. And we've been moving through the five stanzas of the servant song, the fourth and final servant song. And it's really the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of Isaiah's book. It's the heart of the Old Testament. And it clearly lays out the gospel of Jesus Christ that will be fulfilled in the New Testament. And we've been moving through these five stanzas. And in previous lessons, we saw the servant's sovereign success. And that is in chapter 52, 13 through 15. And then we saw that his success will come through shameful suffering, that he won't be exalted until he has been very extremely humiliated. But then we saw last week in Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, we saw the servant's sacrificial substitution. And that's the heart of the gospel. And that's the heart of this song. Now we're kind of moving back out and we're going to look at Isaiah 53, 7 through 9, and we're going to see the servant's silent submission. And if you look here on this chart, you can see that the shameful suffering is parallel with the silent submission. The suffering we're going to see was not forced upon him. Instead, he was willing and silently accepted it and submitted to it. Let's read Isaiah 53, 7 through 9. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Isaiah 53, 7 through 9. Isaiah 53, 7 through 9. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? For the transgression of my people 
to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet, and yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we come to you on this Sunday, and we ask, Lord, that you would move through these difficult circumstances. We lament again, Lord, the great loss of life. We lament lost jobs. We lament lost opportunities. We lament perhaps even lost loved ones due to this virus. And yet, Lord, we know that your redemptive purposes are moving forward and you're calling a people out for yourself and you're still glorifying your son. And so we pray on this Easter Sunday that, Lord, you would be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. We pray this in the wonderful name of our risen King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, they say that silence can be deafening. And when you hear that phrase, silence, the silence was deafening, it usually refers to a time when people are guilty and they have nothing to say in their defense. For instance, you might accuse or confront your child and say, why did you do this? And they know they're caught and they know they're guilty and the silence is deafening. They can say nothing in their defense. But here in Isaiah 53, 7 through 9, the silence is deafening for the opposite reason. And the reason is this person is innocent and refuses to defend himself or explain himself or even attack those who are falsely and unjustly oppressing him. It reminds me of a story about a rather stormy board meeting. Maybe you've been in one of those. And some very harsh things had been said. And one man, always highly respected and unusually wise in his judgments, had said nothing throughout the proceedings. Suddenly, one of the leaders in the argument turned to him and said, You have not said a word. I am sure we would all like to hear your opinion about this matter. Then the quiet man responded, I have discovered that there are many times when silence is an opinion. Silence is an opinion. And in fact, what we know is sometimes silence speaks louder than words. And that's the message of this passage. Jesus, we're going to see, is silent before his accusers, not because he's guilty, but actually because he's innocent. And he's willingly submitting his life to be a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Now, Isaiah 53, 7 through 9, walks us through the final day of Jesus' life on this earth and takes us right up to the edge of the resurrection. In fact, these verses 7 through 9, as you see here in this chart, it actually takes us through Good Friday. Verse 7 is the early morning, midnight of Friday, on the unjust trials that Jesus endures. Verse 8 is the afternoon where he endures the unjust execution by Roman crucifixion. And verse 9 is the early evening 
where the burial takes place. But there's an unexpected, unexpected event in his burial. But I want, what I want you to see is that in this verse, the servant's response is the silence of the lamb. The silence of the lamb. Again, verse 7 says, Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. Two times that's emphasized. So let's see today, what does the silence of the lamb say to us? What is he saying to us in his silence? And the first thing I want you to see is that the silence of the lamb shouts, submission, submission. Submission. The silence is shouting submission. We see this again in verse 7. There is so much to shout about in this verse, verse 7. And I just want to show you three things. And uh, let's look at it. First is, the servant in this verse becomes a sheep like us. He becomes a sheep like us. In verse 6, it says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. But here in verse 7, now the servant is a sheep. And that's good news, because that means the servant, who is the son of God, is also the son of man and has become human and is a sheep just like you and I. He can relate to what you're going through. The second thing we see is that the servant is a sinless sheep unlike us. He may be a sheep, a human being like us, but he is a sinless sheep unlike us. He, instead of being wayward and lost like we are in verse 6, the contrast in verse 7, he is willing to be obedient and submitted to what the Father wants him to do. And we know from verse 9 that he's actually sinless because look at verse 9 in your Bible. It says, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He had not only not acted in sin, but his very heart was sinless. Because the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if there's no deceit in their mouth, then there was no deceit in his heart. He was a sinless sheep, unlike us. But the third thing, and the most important thing, is this. The servant is a silent sheep, ready and willing to be sacrificed for us. Now, what are we to make of these things? Well, simply this. His silence shouts his submission. His silence shouts his submission. You see, this verse predicts the oppressive injustice of Jesus' nighttime arrest and the sixth illegal trials he endured from Friday midnight throughout the morning. Three before the Jewish leaders, three before the Roman rulers. But Isaiah predicts accurately and completely fulfilled in the life of Jesus that in spite of the impressive injustice of these proceedings, the servant of the Lord will remain silent. He will remain silent before his accusers. He will remain silent before the false witnesses. He will remain silent 
before the false charges that he knows will end up in his sentencing of execution by crucifixion. Now, let's just stop and ask ourselves and get honest here. How would you respond? How do you respond when you are unjustly or falsely accused? Now, think about it. How do you respond when you're blamed for something that someone else did, but you didn't do it, but you're blamed for it? Now, I know how I respond to that. Let's, let's, let's get even more uh, personal here. What happens when you get a traffic ticket that you don't think you deserve? I know what I did. I tried to fight it in court. It didn't turn out well. What happens when you get an unfair grade on a test? I know what I did as a student. I argued for every point. And I, I showed that, hey, this answer is accurate. What happens when you get blamed for a project failing at work when it wasn't your fault? Now, Let's just be honest. We often aren't as innocent as we think we are. In other words, our test answer may not be as correct as we think so. And our car probably was moving a little faster and more accurately as the radar gun said it was. But even, set those times aside, but even, even if, even when you are fully in the right, but are wrongly accused, what do we do? Well, I'll tell you what we do. It's what I do. We speak up. We stand up. We defend ourselves. We explain ourselves. We point out where others are wrong. We justify and say, look, I'm innocent. I'm wrongly accused. Yet here is the sinless Son of God who's being wrongly betrayed, falsely arrested, unjustly tried, and he's about to be condemned to death. And what does he do? He remains silent. He remains silent when falsely accused. And even though Jesus, as unjustly oppressed, even though he was unjustly oppressed, He allowed himself to be afflicted. In fact, that first verse, the first part of verse 7, could be translated, he humbled himself. He allowed himself to be afflicted. In fact, this is probably where Paul gets Philippians 2.8 when he says this, Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. You see, in spite of all this unjust oppression, physical, emotional, mental abuse and attack, all of it wrong, all of it unjust, all of it unworthy of who he was, yet he remained silent. And I could take you through each of these six trials and I could show you that though he spoke a few words that were necessary, he never defended himself. He never attacked those who were attacking him. He never uh, declared his innocence. He simply remained silent. Now, let me just say this. Even the best of us want to be heard when we are unfairly treated. Isn't that right? And yet Jesus did not do that. Instead, like a sheep that was before its shears is silent, 
So he opened up not his mouth. And you know what? His accuser, accusers were amazed. In fact, they kept trying. They was like, don't you want to defend yourself? Don't you want to say something in your defense? And you know what? We too this morning, we should be amazed at the silence of the Lamb who was willingly, voluntarily being led to a place of slaughter. And why? Why should we be amazed? Because his silence shouts his humble submission to do the Father's will and to die in the place of sinners like you and I. You see, this verse proves this is no cosmic child abuse by the Heavenly Father. No, the Son is willingly offering himself up, not because he enjoys the suffering, but because he knows his suffering pays the price of those who deserve it. He is coming in their place. Jesus doesn't cry out against God the Father and say, why are you allowing this to me? Now, he does say, why have you forsaken me? Because he's crying out to the Father and saying, look, even in this moment, when I am suffering for the sins of the world, and we are separated, I still am trusting and relying on you. He is not blaming him. Jesus does not blame his enemies. Instead of blaming them on the cross, he cries out to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the reason he cries to the Father is because he knows God the Father shares the same heart to save sinners that he has. So his silence shouts submission, and it signals to us his willingness, indeed, his desire to be sacrificed for others. And that tells us the second thing that his silence tells us. His sil- the silence of the Lamb shouts to us, substitution, substitution, substitution. That's what we hear in the silence. Look again at verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? The RSV Bible starts this verse out with this translation. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away, meaning to his death. And so the first thing I want you to see here is that the sinless Lamb of God was unjustly condemned to death. Now, verse 8 is very clear. Two key phrases. Taken away means taken away with a sentence of death and cut off from the land of the living. I don't think you could be any more clear. This is a death sentence. This is an execution that is predicted. Think about this predicted 700 years before Christ was ever born or would ever die and predicts a Roman crucifixion by execution. And so everything about Jesus' arrest and trials and his death was unjust because he was truly an innocent man. He didn't deserve to die. And you don't have to take my word for it. Actually, Seven times in the Gospels, people say that Jesus is innocent. 
seven different times from his betrayer, Judas, who says, I have betrayed innocent blood, all the way to the Roman centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion, who looked up as he took his last breath and said, truly, this man was righteous. Truly, this is the Son of God. You see, Jesus' only crime that he was guilty of was telling the truth. When asked by the Jewish high priest, swear to God, tell me, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of Man? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus spoke truth and said, I am. And with that, they declared him a rebel, a blasphemer, and deserving of death. But here's the, only, here's the reality, and here's the second thing I want you to see. The sacrificial lamb of God took the place of those who deserved to die for their own sins. So he was unjustly condemned to death, but he voluntarily took that death so that he could die in the place of those who deserve to die. And that's the last part of verse 8. No one of his generation paused to consider, you know what? This is an innocent man. He doesn't deserve to die. In fact, he's dying and suffering the punishment that we deserve. He's a sinless sheep. He's a submitted follower of God. We are wayward and lost. We are the rebels who are running from God. And let me just stop and say that. Maybe you're that way today. Maybe you're far from God. And you know it because your conscience bothers you. You have a past that you can't run from. Maybe you're enslaved to a habit or an addiction that you desperately want to set free. And yet there's something coming between you and God. And maybe you know that you are not right with God simply because you've run from Him and you're tired of running. Well, this is good news because someone took your punishment. Someone took the strike from God that you deserved and He took it in your place and He took away the sins of the world. And so what I want you to see here is that the silence of His submission was for the purpose of his substitution in the place of wayward sheep like you and me. His submission was for substitution for wayward sheep like you and me. Why didn't he protest? Why didn't he speak up? Because he was willingly, voluntarily submitting to dying as our substitute. Think of it. Think of it this morning. He was dying a sinless man in the place of sinners. He was dying an innocent man in the place of the guilty. He was dying as a sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world. He was taken away and condemned to death so that he could take away our sins and we wouldn't receive the eternal punishment that each of us deserves for our sin. Now, when you step back and you put these two facts about the silence of the Lamb together, 
that his silence shouts submission and substitution. When you put those together, you learn the third truth we need to hear in the silence of the Lamb, and it's this. The silence of the Lamb shouts salvation, salvation, salvation. Now, the we see this in verse 9. We've come to verse 9. Now, let's review a little bit. In Isaiah 53, 7 through 9, in verse 7, we've seen his unjust trials, and yet he opened not his mouth. In verse 8, we've seen his unjust execution, which we know was fulfilled 700 years later by crucifixion. And now in verse 9, we come to his burial. But it's an unexpected turn of events. And in this unexpected turn of events, we get the first hints of the resurrection. And so let's look at verse 9. Notice what it says. His grave was assigned with the wicked with wicked men, plural. Yet he was with a rich man, singular, in his death. And why is that? Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Here's what I want you to see. The final humiliation was to be buried with the wicked. You see, this whole servant song, and really the whole life of Jesus, and you can read about it in Philippians chapter 2, is a story of humiliation to exaltation. And here we have come to the lowest point. He has suffered shamefully, and yet he did it as our substitute. And yet he has suffered the most humiliating, the most cruel, the most painful death man has invented, crucifixion by the Roman rulers. And yet now this was going to be the final humiliation. And the Jewish leaders had determined... We see him as a rebel and a criminal and a wicked person. And so we're going to give him the burial he deserves. And we're going to throw him in with the wicked in his burial. Now you say, where can I find that in the Bible? In John, John 19, 31. Let me, let me read you what the Jewish leaders had decided. Then the Jews... Because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before Sabbath, Friday, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, they asked Pilate that their legs be broken and they might be taken away. The question that that verse begs us to ask is, where would these crucified rebels because Jesus Jesus was crucified with two revolutionaries sometimes they we say robbers and and uh, more likely i believe they were revolutionaries who had murdered and o- tried to overthrow the roman authorities and so he these rebels were going to be taken away but where would they be taken away well they wanted Jesus's body to be tossed in what is called the valley of gehenna You say, well, what is the Valley of Gehenna? Well, there's many who know more about it than I do. But from my studies, it was the garbage dump of Jerusalem. It was where you threw yesterday's trash. It was in the past, in Israel's past, it had a very wicked past. In the past, babies 
would be burned alive in the valley of Gehenna as a, a, a fire offering to the false god Moloch. It's a place where garbage was always burning. And so Jesus used it as an example of hell and, and, and an example of the eternal conscious torment that awaits those of us who reject Jesus as our Savior and and the fire is always burning and the smoke was always rising from this garbage dump and the worms were always eating the rotten trash and the dead flesh of criminals. And he likened that to the eternal reality of hell. Ultimately, this was the valley where the bodies of criminals and condemned people were thrown like yesterday's trash. And Pilate, the Roman governor, he was more than happy to oblige. After all, he had moved on to more important things. Rome crucified thousands and thousands, and Jesus was just another man. But here, here is where the first glimmer of hope of the resurrection comes into Isaiah 53, because I want you to see that the first hope of exaltation And ultimately, the resurrection of the servant was being buried in a rich man's tomb. Now, I had never thought about this when I studied this. I had never realized this is really the beginning of the reversal. This is really the first hope of resurrection and exaltation. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death. You see, true believers don't see Jesus as being wicked. They see him as dying for the wicked. And the wicked are you and me, the wayward sheep of humanity. True believers don't want to see Jesus thrown away like yesterday's garbage. True believers don't treat Jesus like trash or or just think of him as important when they need him. Instead, they want to see Jesus exalted as their sovereign Savior. They want to bow their hearts and their knees before Him, and they want to exclaim, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord. They want to say with doubting Thomas on that day when he encountered the risen Lord, my Lord and my God. You see, this is what Isaiah predicted over 700 years before Jesus of Nazareth ever died. And this is what we see fulfilled through a certain man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea and his friend Nicodemus the Pharisee. We'll just call him Joe and Nick for short. But turn in your Bibles to John 19. John 19, and we're going to read verses 38 through 42. John 19, verses 38 through 42, because I want you to see how Isaiah 53, 9 is fulfilled in the New Testament. Notice verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, Asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus. What? To throw him into the valley of Gehenna? No, no. 
And Pilate granted permission. And so he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, the original Nick at night, uh, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred, hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. In other words, it was honorable. It was clean. It was worthy of such a sinless son of God. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, this is Easter. And so we know the rest of the story. Three days later, he rose. He ascended 40 days later. And he is seated now at the right hand of the Father. He is risen. He is reigning. And one day he's going to return. And his kingdom will come. And his will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And the consummation of his exaltation will be fully developed for a thousand years, and then comes the new creation. But what I want you to see is that the exaltation of the suffering servant began when two secret followers stepped out of the darkness, stepped out of the shadows, stepped out of their secrecy, and fully submitted themselves to the suffering servant and said, we will identify with you in your death. We will now go public where before we had been secret disciples. You see, this is an amazing thing. I don't know what Nick and Joe were thinking, except that they were willing now to risk what they weren't willing to risk before. They were willing to overcome their fear. How? By faith in the one that they had seen die. God's word and God's son and God's spirit had worked in their heart. And I pray that his word and his spirit is working in your heart today. And that he's calling you out of the darkness. And he's calling you out of the shadows. And he's calling you out of secrecy. And you will publicly identify with the one who is now the risen, reigning Lord. And you will fully submit your life to him. For that's truly what salvation is. It's abandoning all other hope in ourselves or anyone else, or anything else. And it's fully submitting ourselves by faith to the Lord who died in our place, was buried, and yet was is risen and exalted and coming back again. So I guess this Easter morning, what I want to challenge you with and end this lesson with is this challenge. I want to invite you to follow the risen king as a submitted disciple. I want to challenge you, if you've never followed Jesus, if, if you've never made the, the, the decision to go from darkness to light, 
to go from unbelief to belief, where you turn from your sins and ruling your own life, you sitting on the throne of your heart, to where you abandon those things to trust fully in the one who lived a sinless life that we never have and who died a sacrificial death that we deserved but wouldn't save us and who has risen from the dead and is a sovereign Savior that can grant you eternal life this morning. And so I want to challenge you with two things. First of all, I want to ask you to submit yourself to God the Father by repentance and faith, which I just described, and and, and submit yourself to God the Father by placing your trust in the risen Son, the Son who was the silent, submitted Lamb of God. In other words, I want you to be like Nick and Joe and come out of the shadows and come out of the secrecy and fully submit your life and be born again and become a new creature. God will give you a heart where you can be obedient just as Jesus was. And then secondly, I want to ask you this. Maybe... You've kind of lived a secret Christian life. I want to ask you to show yourself, show yourself to be a submitted disciple by publicly identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lamb of God. You say, Chris, how do I do that? How do I know if I've done that? Well, the way we publicly identify with the risen Savior is through a public profession of faith that's confirmed By water baptism. We are buried in the likeness of his death. Raised in the likeness of his resurrection. To walk in newness of life. If you've never made public your faith in Jesus Christ. And you've never followed him in that first act of a submitted disciple. To be water baptized. Identifying with the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a contact uh, connection link. Right there in your comments, there's a connection link. Click on that and fill that out and tell us that you are making that public profession of faith, that you want to be water baptized. And I promise you, the day is coming and it's coming soon when we are going to gather again as a church and we will baptize you here at LifeBridge and we will celebrate with you your public identification to be a submitted disciple, Christ follower of Jesus Christ. The other way that you publicly identify is through a commitment to covenant membership of a local church. And so those two go together. They belong together. We publicly profess our faith. We're water baptized. And then we make a commitment and we devote ourselves to continuing with a local body of believers. I know we're in this strange time, very weird times, and we're not able to gather. But one day soon we will. And I invite you, fill out that contact card in your comments and say, I want to be a member of LifeBridge. And we will celebrate your membership when we gather here again. The fact is, folks, church cannot be done ultimately online. It cannot be done virtually. It can't be done by me looking at the back 
of a camera. We need to be here in person. And that day is coming. And we want you to be a part of the body here at LifeBridge. So let me pray for us. And I want to pray for us Philippians 3, 7 through 11. And the reason I want to do that is because it was written by another Pharisee that wasn't submitted to the Lord. And then the Lord got a hold of his heart. And like Nick and Joe, Saul, who later became known as the Apostle Paul, gave up everything to be a submitted, sold-out follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Paul wrote these words, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, manure, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law and rule-keeping and religious ritual, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Why? that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Father, may this be true of all who hear this, and may You be glorified this Easter. Folks, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. We'll talk more about the resurrection next week. And yes, you can talk about the resurrection on days other than Easter. And we'll talk about it more next week. See you right here at 930.